Welcome to Pulp, the show that launched a thousand screens. First, we have a main entry from Tales of Mystery and Macabre. You have all been vocal about that one being your favorite show when we at the Pulp editorial board have listened loud and clear. Then, we have a neat little palate cleanser to soothe you to sleep. Hopefully. Let the wonderment unfold. The Traveler A few months ago, I received a letter addressed to me by name with no distinguishing markings or stationery. It read as follows. Dear Mrs. Ramirez, you are cordially invited to a soiree of only a few attendees such as yourself who have reported an observation of the spiritualist variety. Your account of the incident at Rose Park has not escaped the notice of the Spiritualist Society of Boston, and we would like to document your account, as well as others in more welcoming environment away from the years of skeptics. Should you be inclined, present yourself to the Stork Club on January the 16th, 1935. Give the name Niccolo Gianni as the password, and they will escort you to the appropriate room for our gathering. There was no signature on the letter, not even from an officer of the Spiritualist Society. I was not aware that any such Spiritualist Society existed, but if such a thing existed, it would exist in a place like Boston. It also stood out to me as strange that I had not related what had happened to me to anyone outside the police. To be sure, I was not in the least shocked that any member of that violent and corrupt body would violate anyone's privacy, much less that of my own. However, when I gave my account to the police, the officers were hardly accommodating. They wrote nothing down, and while they did not openly laugh in my face, they quickly shooed me out as soon as I had finished giving my account. So in a society that I doubt anyone knew existed wanted to hear my story, I wasn't going to turn that down. However, there was something about it that I didn't find quite right and couldn't really put my finger on. Not that anything about this felt right at all. In the weeks leading up to the soiree, I did my best to find anything I could on this spiritualist society. Since the letter had no return address and no other identifying marks, the only thing I had to go on was the stork club. So I showed up there to poke around and see if anyone there knew anything. The staff knew nothing, but the proprietor happened to be around and was surprisingly willing to help as much as he could, as long as he was accompanied by a green president. I tried a batch of Washingtons, but he didn't seem to like that kind of company. I invited Lincoln to join our little friend's circle, and he seemed to be happy with the ambiance. Then he told me that this was the first such meeting of the Spiritualist Society of Boston and that he had never heard of it before. Sure, he knew some crackpot spiritualists. Who didn't these days? But the ones he knew just tended to have their own little cliques. No larger, organized society. 
So I was out $24, and loath as I was to do so, I returned to the police department to see if anyone there talked. As expected, I was met with jeers and jokes. Hey, look, it's that lady that lost her husband to a, a what did she say? Dark sorcerer that inhabited his body. Yeah, that's it, that's it. So now, what, what, what is it said you wanted? Oh, look, she's leaving. Don't, come back. We miss you. So that was a dead end. My last resort was to go to City Hall. My last resort was to go to City Hall and see what I could dig up in the Hall of Records about any other sister societies that might be registered or have buildings under their name. Anyone that would sound like they would have information like the one I got an invite from. I found an office registered to the Brotherhood of Esoteric Observation and Discussion Thereof. I wasn't really sure what that meant, but it sounded like they would know something. The Esoteric Brotherhood was an experience, to say the least. It was little more than a small room with bare furnishings closer to the docks than downtown, and a building of assorted offices occupied by mostly semi-legitimate grifters. When I approached the office of the Brotherhood, the door was open and there were three gentlemen sitting in a small room. One with a twirled mustache, about as esoteric as you might imagine, condescending and looked for any excuse to illustrate how anyone else was not a proper esoteric. Another was in every way the complete opposite. He was about twice the size of the first man and wore a suit about three times the size. He rushed over to shake my hand while the other ignored me as soon as he was socially able to. The second seemed just happy to meet with anyone who would discuss any spiritualist topic whatsoever. The third was so quiet I wasn't sure if he could speak. Getting a straight answer from any of them was about as easy as playing fetch with a cat. The first one just scoffed and said something about Nicologiani or some such obscure someone... The second darted from rabbit trail to rabbit trail until he forgot what the question was, and the third just sat there like a scared animal, as if he had never seen anyone else in the world except for the other two. After it became clear that I wasn't going to get anywhere with this crowd, I made my exit. The first one gave a sneer, the second one apologized for not being more of a help, and the third just sat there. As I left the office, I could have sworn. No, I'm, I'm, I'm certain. The smell of sulfur wafted through the halls. That being the final option I had of learning anything about this letter, I resigned myself to going to the meeting with what little information I had. When I showed, the Stork Club had been completely transformed. The staff I had met and the proprietor had been completely replaced. Granted, I had been in during the day, but This was night and there were no tables, nothing set up for large crowds. It was as if the whole place was now ours and ours only for the night. Whatever spiritualist society this was, it was far more grand than the Brotherhood. So strange that no one, not even the Brotherhood, knew of this organization. After giving the name I had been instructed at reception... I was led up a steep staircase by a jittery waitstaff to a large study on the third floor. There were two others waiting. One was a woman in a casual enough dress. The other was a man in an entirely average brown suit. As soon as I arrived, the two stopped talking. 
They stood by the hearth as if there had been a fire lit, but there was none, and the hearth contained only fresh firewood and an unlit brass candelabra on the ledge. Where one would expect the smell of a lit hearth and wood fire, the overwhelming stench of perfume laid over the whole of the room. The man in the suit was the first to break the silence. I don't suppose you were the mysterious progenitor of our invitation. He sounded more apprehensive than eager, more cautious than curious. I was going to ask the same, I replied, which I suppose means that neither of you are. Both nodded, and the man in the brown suit reached out his hand. Andrew Winters, he said, and this is Alexandra. He pointed to the woman seated on the couch. Pleased to meet you, she said. I couldn't quite place the accent. I do apologize for the cold. None of us here can get a fire going in this damnable place, Andrew said. The staff have been at it for hours, and still nothing. The wind walks through the place as it pleases, the woman in the dress added. I would welcome wind over this insufferable perfume, the man said. Positively agreed, the woman exclaimed. Winters didn't reply at first. No doubt, searching for something to say. Awkward silence. It's good to have as many of us together as we can, eh? He said, his breath just barely visible in the cold of the room. Our frustrated attempts at trying to find something for conversation were thankfully interrupted by the entrance of a fourth guest, a person who wore a rust-colored tweed vest over a cream-buttoned shirt and damn fine-fitting slacks. They introduced themselves as Finian James. Well, I'm relieved not to have been the first to arrive, Finian said and proceeded to investigate the unlit fire before giving up as we all had before them. The last to arrive was a gentleman with a garish mustache who introduced himself cautiously and stoically as Mr. Gilbert Walker and seated himself in one of the five chairs arranged in a circle without much pomp or circumstance. Five chairs, five guests, none of whom seemed to know each other. No sooner had Gilbert seated himself when Finian addressed the elephant in the room. So what in the perfumed hell do all of us have to do with any of this nonsense? They said, putting their hands in their pockets of their vest, which was too small to accommodate them. Well, the letter said all of us have had an encounter with the supernatural, Alexandra replied. But what have you experienced? Well, I'm certainly not going first, Finian said. It doesn't matter to me, so I can go first just as well as anyone, Gilbert said, twirling his mustache while staring at the floor with glazed eyes. We all listened attentively, hoping to gather some sort of information about why we were all there. I had taken my son to an army parade, Gilbert began. The child enjoyed the band, the streamers, everything. He had no idea what it was for, who they were, he just wanted to see the trucks. People all around us began chanting. Then, all of a sudden... The child calmed, straightened his back. His head seemed to rise slightly as if his neck had been elongated a little. His eyes widened, 
When he spoke, he had fully changed. Why are you not cheering? he asked. You should be cheering like the others. And then he pulled out the penknife that I had given him the previous month and started swinging it at me. A police officer pulled him away. As far as I know, the child is still in an institution somewhere, but I have not been able to find out where. He concluded his story, staring blankly at the intricate red pattern on the rug beneath our feet. Where before I mistook his stoicism for melancholy, now I understood it to be the exhaustion of grief. How did you find out he was in an institution? Andrew asked, his laser-sharp focus not to be deterred by melancholy. Gilbert frowned slightly. You know, now that I think of it, when I had gone to the police precinct to find out what had happened, every man jack of them pointed me to a dead end. But one of them walked out and told me that my boy was upstate in a hospital, but he couldn't tell me where. Gilbert remained puzzled. And now, now I notice he, he, he made sure to tell me outside the earshot of the other officers. Can you remember what he looked like? Alexandra asked. If he knows something, we might... No, oh, I, I, I think he gave me a card. I don't, I don't remember where I put it, Gilbert replied. The wind had begun to howl, and everyone shivered. Oh, I don't mind any, Finian said with their hands still in their vest pockets. I enjoy the cold. There was a pregnant pause. I felt that what Finian said had made some uncomfortable, but I wasn't sure why. Alexandra broke the silence. My experience was similar to yours, Gilbert. I was at dinner with my mother and father. We were talking of Spain and the topic of the Carlists, Rosa. I disagreed with them, but the conversation moved on. Then, suddenly, my father's arms went limp. His head tilted to the side, and he said something odd. I do remember the smell of sulfur as well. He then rose in a sort of jilted way. His, his legs had fallen asleep. He picked up the teapot and raised it above his head. I must say I fainted. When I had come to, my mother explained to me that my father had been taken away. She said a nice young police officer had come and asked us many more questions than we could expect from a policeman. Then he told us to stay somewhere warm and not trust even our loved ones. Mother talked to him, so I am not sure what he looked like. But all I know is that I have tried to relate it to my friends, but no one will believe me. We all nodded in understanding. Finian went next. I have been haunted by this man for months. I've had several close calls with him. It began after a close confidant had a similar experience as you two. I knew enough to know that whatever this was, it was dangerous. Then, one by one, our mutual friends began to fall victim. I've avoided anyone that might have had contact. It seemed to me that this sort of thing moves from person to person, like the flu. 
I wouldn't be caught dead at a police station, but around February this year, an officer found me nonetheless and informed me that my brother had been shot by a close friend, acting rather erratically, and that I should stay in well-heated areas, which I thought was strange given the circumstances, but doesn't seem so strange now. I, I tell the truth, I have very few friends left. I thought he was only after me for some reason. Until I met you all. We all know the bastard doesn't like warmth, Gilbert said. Well, that just leaves you, Andrew said and indicated to me. Mine is similar to all yours, I began. I was sitting in a park on a brisk evening in the fall, near dusk, with my fiancé talking idly, when suddenly his eyes widened in a dead stare. He broke out into a strange smile, wider than I even knew he was capable of. He looked directly at me with those now lifeless eyes and said, You don't belong here. After that, he attacked me. It was all a blur. I ran into the shelter of a nearby pub and waited it out until someone was kind enough to walk me home. It must have been the warmth that deterred him, Alexandra added. Likely your saving grace, Gilbert echoed. I continued with my story. I made a police report the next day, but was laughed out of the station. No officer helped. I have since separated from my fiancé, moved and taken every precaution to prevent him from ever finding or contacting me. When was your incident? Andrew asked. Late October, I replied. Was anyone else's incident later? Andrew continued. Everyone shook their heads. You were not helped by a policeman? Alexander asked. That is curious. No, the ones I reported to acted like every policeman I have ever known, I replied. Hang on, Finian said. Aside from our friend here, we were all helped at different times, at different police stations. Do you think it's possible that each of our incognito benefactors are not only one and the same, but have infiltrated the police? Finian folded their arms in smug satisfaction. Another pregnant pause ensued while we all processed what Finian said. Gilbert was the first to respond. Well, it seems that none of us have had a helpful officer other than our mystery man. In fact, quite the opposite. I wonder if he is an imposter who gained access in order to be trusted. If he wanted to be trusted, then why did he dress up as a police officer? I replied. Perhaps it was not to our benefit, but to the detriment of the body traveler, Andrew said. I believe we may have stumbled upon a rivalry. He must know that anyone who experienced these things might have a run-in with the police at some point. I wonder if he is using them to find his nemesis, Alexandra said. Why was he unavailable to you, Finian said with a stern face, indicating to me. I wonder if his luck ran out, Andrew replied. Which might explain why he was so unavailable for our friend here, Gilbert said, gesturing towards me. Finian had begun to pace back and forth in front of the hearth. This all still begs the question, why are we here? 
If our common accomplice is in hiding, and none of us rented out the entire Stort Club, sent us all a letter, who did? Finian asked. No smug delivery this time. In all honesty, I had assumed it was our accomplice that called this meeting, otherwise I would not have come. But if not him, then who? No one replied. We all knew the answer. That moment, almost in an instant, we all looked at each other as we became aware of a familiar smell. Sulfur. I'm sure I was not the only one in a fit of panic. Sorry, chaps, Andrew said from over by the hearth, lit match in his hand. Didn't mean to frighten you. Still can't get this damnable thing started. He tried lighting the fire with a few more times before settling for lighting the candles on top of the hearth. He sat back down in his chair and all of us looked at each other in silence until, again, Finian broke it and addressed the elephant. Easy, lads, let's all be careful what information we disclose now. We are in enemy territory. We all nodded in stern approval. Do you think it could be one of us? Alexandra gasped. Not likely, Finian replied. We know what it looks like when he takes over. We all know what he sounds like. All of us seem to have our wits about us. We all nodded in agreement. We don't know if he is listening, I said. We don't know if he is one of the staff here. He could be biding his time. I agree, Finian said. Every moment we stay here is a gift to him. Well, let us not panic, Alexandra said. We should all be able to leave here in peace. Did anyone see a hallway leading out? Gilbert asked. Damnably cold in here. Does anyone have any more matches? Andrew asked. We could keep him out of here if we can only get a fire going. Gilbert pulled his hand out of his pocket and handed Andrew a small matchbook. This released a few odd bits of paper from his pocket. What's this? Andrew asked, looking at a small card among the pocket garbage. It's the contact card the young policeman gave me, Gilbert replied. I, I didn't realize I'd still had it. At that moment, Andrew's lips began to form a lifeless smile. His neck seemed to stretch, and his head tilted to the side. His eyes widened in a crazed deadness. His arms went limp to his sides, and we all noticed the putrid smell of sulfur. Thank you for helping me find him, dearies. This will be quite a speedy hunt. The voice may have come from Andrew's body, but it was not Andrew. After he spoke, his eyes and lifeless clown smile widened. Finian, without hesitation, grabbed the lit candelabra and swung it at Andrew's head until he fell to the floor. We all sat there, quiet, either relieved or horrified, stillness and silence. Maybe now we'll be rid of him, Finian said, to a collective sigh from the remainder of us. Then, in the corner of my eye, I noticed Gilbert's arms go limp. 
Did you really think it would be that easy? The voice said, and the smell of sulfur overpowered the smell of perfume. That was a... Well, I wouldn't call it an homage to the thing on the doorstep by H.P. Lovecraft. We at the editorial board appreciate the Cthulhu mythos, but old H.P. can go fuck himself in his unconscionable fascist ideology. Next, we have a, well, we don't really know what to call it other than a damn good time, but we also decided to call it a part of the space and future things. Our old sci-fi show that we haven't seen since episode one. On with the show. Let the wonderment unfold. The Silent Burden. The week before Clive visited, I was a nervous wreck. I began child-proofing the house so he wouldn't hurt himself. Neptunians have a very different kitchen setup, and I didn't want him getting into anything that would traumatize him. I I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that Clive is a Neptunian. Unlike most Neptunians, visitors or citizens of Earth, Clive needs a bit more hands-on care. You may or may not know this, but Neptunians are very similar to humans. In fact, biologically, they can live on Earth in most ways identical to humans. They can breathe our air, drink our water, eat our food, and do whatever we do. In fact, most Neptunian doctors prescribe an Earth diet or a visit to Earth for health. Nah, I don't know, things must be pretty bad on Neptune. Last time he visited, I made it my mission to get him comfortable with animals, but ended up spending most of our time trying to get him to be comfortable enough to say hi to my dog. Now, my dog loves everyone, which actually intimidated Clive more than anything, as she always ran up to him and tried to lick his shins. He would then freak out, he is an incorrigible germaphobe, and then he would shoo pickles away from him, followed by a routine of excessively spraying his shins with disinfectant. By the end of the week, I had gotten both of them to calm down, and as long as I didn't try to push Clive past his germophobia too much, I've learned that I can get him to be okay with one thing, but if I constantly push him to do normal things, he shuts down and I won't try anything. So I have to choose one thing I want him to try and work on it all week, and maybe he'll try it. Anyway, he was outside trying to enjoy the air that he said would kill him if he had too much of when he mistook a raccoon for my dog. Not an easy mistake for a human, a very easy mistake to make for a Neptunian, apparently. Well, long story short, he spent the night in the hospital and had to get a rabies vaccine. So this time, I was taking no chances. I knew he would be on edge around animals so I left Pickles with my neighbor in exchange for sharing my Neptunian channel subscriptions, and I had planned a series of activities for my guest that should be fine and backup activities in case he developed new phobias.
Last time, he kept gravitating towards the ocean because being too landlocked gave him claustrophobia, so I made sure to plan stuff close enough to the ocean. Last time, he said he had developed an allergy to sugar, and if he smelled sweetness in the air, would hold his throat as if he were choking. So I made a plan to avoid shopping areas that included anything remotely close to the confectionery. When I picked him up from the orbit landing, he was the last one off the landing craft. I wasn't surprised. He was probably too afraid to get in the aisle if it meant touching anyone, so he was huddled in the seat waiting for the last passenger to disembark. At least that was the image I had in my head. When he finally emerged, he was wearing gloves and sanitizing them. He also had an umbrella that he was using as a parasol to shade him and a Hawaiian shirt that he was wearing. How have you been? I was careful not to ask how the flight was, as he was probably going to list a litany of complaints about this or that inconsequential thing. I was going to have enough of that on that visit, and I didn't need to hear more. I knew he didn't like hugs, so I held out a bag of goodies that he requested last time. Vitamin C, sanitizer with essential oils for one of his many uh, conditions, and his favorite, Swedish fish. Oh, I am okay, he replied. He wasn't wringing his hands, but it felt like he was. He looked warily at the bag. What is it? he asked, as if there was an equal chance that he would crumble into dust if he received it. I told him what it was, and he relaxed a little bit. Well, I can't have Swedish fish, but I'll definitely use the sanitizer, he said, and rooted through the bag like a child opening a Christmas present. He found the sanitizer and quickly removed his gloves and started spraying it on his hands, even though he had been sanitizing the outside of his gloves the whole trip. I started telling him about the plans for the week, when he started scratching at his hands and shaking them rapidly, as if there was something on them that he couldn't get off. What's in this? he asked indignantly. Sanitizer and eucalyptus, I replied. You did that on purpose! You know I can't use anything with eucalyptus! he screeched. I quickly emptied my water bottle over his hands to soothe them, but he kept shaking them. Eventually he calmed down. I think he could tell I was mad because as soon as his breathing became normal again, he addressed me. I'm sorry. I know you didn't do it on purpose, he said. I say things I don't mean when I'm hurt. He put on a forced but seemingly genuine smile, a goofy grin from ear to ear, and asked where we were going next. I was frustrated. Seems like he always has some crisis, but I could tell he was making an effort. I started to call a rideshare to the beach. It's a surprise, but I promise it's your favorite, I said. It wasn't his favorite, really. It was just something that he hated less, that that's about as close to having a favorite as Clyde can get. Instead of joy, his face dropped. Please, no surprises. Just tell me... I knew it. I knew he would have a problem with it. 
I really wanted it to be a surprise, but if he wasn't going to like it, the best thing would be to let him know now so I could change directions. I have a nice spot picked out by the water. No sand, I know how much you hate sand, and there's not a lot of people, I know how much you hate people. And it's by the water, so there's lots of good fresh air. And, to top it off, we should get there just in time for the sunset. I probably had a silly grin, as I was extremely proud of myself for having chosen the perfect spot. Oh, I can't go near the water, he said apologetically. The sea breeze is just terrible for my lungs. He looked up at me as if he knew he was being a pain. Oh, come on. Last time you said you needed to be there because you felt claustrophobic. I thought I had him. I thought maybe if it made sense, he would push himself just a little bit out of his comfort zone. Mm, let's go somewhere else. Can we go somewhere else? He held the handles of his bag close together and close to his chest while he looked up at me. I just don't want to go to the beach, okay? Is there a nice hill, maybe away from the water? He asked. It felt like he was wringing his hands again, even though he wasn't. I did not have a place planned that looked like what he was describing, but I did know of a place. I cancelled the ride and put in directions to a park in the hills. And it even had a nice view for the sunset. Despite all the odds, I was able to get him what he wanted and what he decided he needed at exact moment. I didn't really talk on the way to the park. Neither of us said anything. There was about twenty minutes of silence. His hurt puppy act faded after a while, but I think he knew I was still a bit frustrated. When we got out, made sure he had everything, and just pointed to the trail, it wasn't a far walk to the vista point, but when we got there, instead of enjoying the panoramic view of the soon-to-be-setting sun, he pulled out his goodie bag while we were waiting and frantically looked around his own bag. I can't find my sanitizer, he said. I just waited. I was sure he had about three extra. You don't have an extra? He looked up at me. Just the one from your goodie bag, he said. He pulled it out and gave it back to me. I can't use this one, he said blankly, while still trying to root around the bag that he had moved on his elbow. I'm sure you can still use it, I said. The sanitizer should kill anything that would be a problem. I knew it wasn't true, but I also didn't think anything he believed about it was true either, so what would it do? I told you, I can't use that one. He was getting more agitated. He was getting more agitated. He didn't even look up from the bag he was rooting around in. Oh, come on, how long have you even been avoiding eucalyptus? I said, handing it back to him. Oh, for ages, he said without looking up. I had my doubts. In fact, I was pretty sure it was psychosomatic. He just kept rooting through his bag and getting more and more agitated. I bet if you had more of an open mind, 
I said. I held out the sanitizer as he continued to rummage around. I told you, I can't use that. He was looking through his bag even more frantically. And I don't even like Swedish fish, he yelled. You're making it up. It's not even real, I yelled back and threw his sanitizer back at him. I saw that the bottle cap was off, but I didn't care. I thought it would be good for him to get over his fear. The bottle hit him all right. It hit him and spilled all over his arm. He screamed his neurotic scream again, but after a moment I noticed the skin on his arm started to redden. I took my sweater off and started frantically wiping the sanitizer off his arm. He produced an extra water bottle from his large tote bag and started pouring it over his arm as well. I soaked the sweater in the water and kept washing it off of him. When we got the sanitizer off of him, his face was redder than his arms. I told you I can't have eucalyptus! He tucked his lips into his mouth after he spoke and looked me straight in the eyes. His eyes looked like those of a hurt puppy you accidentally kicked because they were in your way. Only I actually did this to him on purpose. How was I supposed to know it was real? I said. You make everything so terrible because you expect it to be so terrible. His face lost his perpetual worried look. His big bug eyes dropped. His head lowered and his voice fell in off. You do the same with me, he said. I feel like such a burden, and I know that you try so hard, but I feel like you expect me to be difficult. I sat there for a while, thinking about what he'd said. We both didn't say anything a few minutes. He was right. I didn't know how to say it, but he was right. I'm sorry. I thought you liked Swedish fish, I said. It was the best I could do in the moment. No. I only ate them last time because you had them out, and I didn't want to offend you, he replied earnestly. He let out a sigh and looked out across the field. It is a beautiful sunset, even if it isn't by the ocean. Next time I'll have to visit Neptune, I said. Oh, you would hate it, he replied with his old dry smile. They don't have any Swedish fish. How about it, folks? By now, you've probably forgotten all about the body-snatching sorcerer who may inhabit your loved ones and fill them with hate at any moment. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed the show. Next week is our last anthology episode before our season finale arc begins with Vasquez and Walker and their journey to the Phantom Islands. Until next time.